Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, we love your word, Lord. It's, it's words of life, words of hope, words of truth. And Lord, we know that uh, you use your word to uh, convict us, to reprove, uh, correct us, to train us, to correct us in righteousness, Lord. And um, Father, we ask this morning that you would do that with your word for us this morning, Lord. We pray that it would uh, go forth and bear the fruit you have set out for it, Lord. We know that you're faithful. And uh, God, we just pray that you'd have your way in this place, Lord. I pray that through the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would soften uh, our ears and our hearts to the things of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth would be uh, honorable to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, hey, we started in James chapter 1, the beginning of, uh, of a new series last week. And, and, and we, we started out, we talked, we hit a little bit about Jesus and his family, how he went from critic to bonds, or sorry, J James, half-brother of Jesus, uh, who's the writer of, of the book of James, how he went from critic, brother, to bondservant, my Lord and my King. We, we, we touched on that a little bit. And then, and then we got into this, this discussion um, of counting it all joy when we go through trials and tribulations and sufferings of, of various kinds. And, and we, we kind of jumped around a little bit. We hit Hebrews 13, 15 and talked about a sacrifice of praise being on our lips, uh, being the, na the name of Jesus Christ being on our lips uh, as we go through trials and tribulations. And at the end, we just, we, we wrapped up in verse 12 that talks about for those who remain steadfast, that there's a great reward, a crown of life waiting for us. So today we start at verse 13, and uh, it's going to, the passage is kind of going to bust into two sections. It's first going to talk a little bit more about the reality of our hearts and the reality of who God is, and then it's going to talk some application about being and doing. So starting in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Once again, it's when we are tempted, just like before, when we come against trials of various kinds, it's not if, it's when. We are going to endure temptations in this life. That's just a given. You know, it's a little bit different vocabulary here than it is in verse 2 where it talks about uh, the trials. These are talking about evil temptations you know, it's, it's, it's very important that we have the right idea about the nature of our hearts and the reality of who God is. We can never, ever say that I am tempted to evil by God because God cannot bear evil. You know, the, the reality is, is, is if we cruise back in the Gospels and we see uh, in Matthew chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. And, and, and we know, we know the, the account well. We know that he came, he was baptized. Uh, Jesus would almost, it was, if it was like us, be on a spiritual high and away. And he went into the desert and he spent 40 days fasting. 
And at the end of 40 days of fasting, he's hungry, and he's, I'm sure he's weary and tired. And the devil shows up when he's hungry, and he says, oh, you're hungry, turn those rocks into bread and eat. He tempts Jesus first off with the lust of the flesh, stuff that, that fills our bellies, that, that our bodies crave. And Jesus said, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. Secondly, he tempts him with the pride of life. He tempts him to prove in a, 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 in a something you can watch. He, he tempts him that, to, to reveal who he is before God has ordained it. He, he tempts him to go to the top of the Temple Mount, cast himself off, and the Lord will send angels, the devil said, and, and protect you as you fall. They're, they're talking like a 200-foot drop, right? He's, he's, he's going after the pr uh, pride of life is where the devil is, is uh, tempting him. It's interesting that the devil used a little bit of scripture there when he tempted Jesus. We need to be careful when we hear something that doesn't pass the Lipness test. We need to be Bereans. We need to win. When you hear something taught, whether it's, it's the great scholar or whether it's someone like me or Matt or anyone, we need to be Bereans and verify that what's being taught is in line with God's word. We need to be in God's word ourselves so that we can determine when it's been twisted and respond as Jesus did. It is written. And then, what did Jesus do? Uh, what was Jesus tempted with? The lust of the eyes, the wealth of the nations of the world. And once again, it is written. It's really interesting that the whole counsel of God's word is so vitally important to our lives. Because, you know, Jesus fought spiritual warfare with the book of Deuteronomy. It is written. It's interesting to note, I, I read this, this quote by Spurgeon this week, and I thought it was great. He said, but let us do what we will. We shall be tempted. God has one son without sin, but he never had a son without temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way. But because Jesus could not be tempted, no evil is in him, and nor can he handle any evil around him. It's, it's one of the proofs that Jesus is fully human and fully God. He was tempted, and he could not be tempted. So the reality is, is that God will never, ever tempt us with evil. If, if we start speaking that God has tempted us with something evil, it almost seems to me that we're almost speaking blasphemy before God. Because what, what does God do? He reveals his kindness to lead us into repentance, it says in Romans chapter 2. We know that if there's a trial or a temptation has been allowed to come our way, that God always uses things to be teaching moments, to build us up, not tear us down. When the, the devil comes our way, he wants to pull the rug out from under our feet and toss us. There's a distinct difference in, the, in uh, what the Lord allows and how the Lord uses events versus how the devil does. It's interesting. We think in our society, we think that and we say it often that we are our own man, we are our own woman, that we can follow your heart. If it feels right, do it. But here we are reminded 
where evil starts. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then <clears throat> desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You know, Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things. That there's no, there's no cure for our, our hearts. We know that, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that, that there was a sinful nature that came upon mankind. And Romans chapter 5 talks about, about it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world to all men through one man, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And later on, verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trans trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin came into the world through one man, and now we struggle with the sin nature. Our hearts actually are, are depraved and evil. That's where evil starts. That's what James tells us here. And it's interesting, the, the, the progression that goes on. First, he says that, it's, that we, are, we have a desire, and then it conceives, and then it gives birth, and then it grows, and then it brings forth death. You know, it, it's, like the, it's like the antithesis of spiritual development, is it not? You know, spiritual development, the... A seed is planted. The Lord softens one's heart. A seed is planted. It's nurtured. It's watered. It's gardened. And it's brought to birth faith in Jesus Christ. And after faith is birthed, we, we come out as babes. And as we study God's word and grow and, and, and meditate in the things of the Lord, and as he draws us along, we grow into maturity where we become fruitful and useful to him. And eventually, we receive a crown of life. Isn't it interesting that evil is the exact antithesis, how it functions? We so often, in my heart, it's easy to have a desire and to let it fester. The longer I let a desire fester, the longer I do not take my thoughts and my desires captive to the things of the Lord, the longer they fester, the more they go and they conceive. And then they become something, sin. And next thing you know, I am caught in a trap with this sin, and I'm tied to it. And it becomes like a millstone around my neck eventually causes, you know, it causes spiritual death, right? It's separation from Jesus Christ. We know in John 10, 10, he says that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that being the devil, right? But I, Jesus speaking, have come that you may have life and have it to the full. It's interesting when we look in, throughout Scripture, we can see that, that God has a great plan for us, does he not? He also provides ways out for us, I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Every single one of us is tempted. Every single one of us, that evil, sinful flesh desire in our heart tempts us and draw, draws us. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God provides a way out so that we can stand up under it. He always does. 
You know, when Matt and I were in, uh, were in California, uh, we listened to a message from uh, Alistair Begg, and he was talking about David and Bathsheba and the sin that David and Bathsheba engaged in. And it's, you know, that progression from conception to birth to death, that happened there. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David had obviously a desire. He saw, he sent, he took, she came, and action happened. And you know what? Actually, death happened too. He was separated from his closest with the Lord for one, and the child from that, from that, sinful, from that sinful encounter actually died. It was death. David knew better. He knew to yield. He knew that God would provide a way out for him, but he let that desire fester in his heart and let it grow and conceive and give birth. You know, Joseph, on the other hand, when uh, Potiphar's wife came to him and said, come, 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 come to my room, be with me. What Joseph answered, I cannot sin against God. Joseph was concerned that his relationship between himself and his maker God was kept on the up and up. He didn't want separation before that. You know, I don't know about you, but I get tempted by all these things. I get tempted by the pride of life. I get tempted by my physical wants, needs, desires. I get tempted by wealth. We confront these things every day. And we struggle with them, but we've got to remember that God gave us a way out through His Son, Jesus Christ. I remind when I think of the condition of my heart, you know, sometimes in my pride I can say, oh, you know, I'm never going to fall. I was, Alistair Begg reminded us that never say never. Let's remain skeptical of our own motives and actions. Let's remember the wickedness of our hearts. My inclination is all too often towards myself rather than the things of God. And I'm reminded that sin is always an inside job. It starts in the inside and is birthed to the outside. That's why Jesus, when he was talking about the Pharisees, he, you know, and he said we need to be, have the inside of the cup cleaned before the outside. We need our hearts transformed and transplanted before the outside is cleaned up. You know, there's been a... But we have choices when we come to temptation, don't we not? We can yield to sin, or we can take every thought captive to Christ. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So God does not ever tempt us with evil. Evil comes from our own heart. And let's be clear about the nature of God. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers or brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from God. It's a, it's a deception to blame God for the bad things in our lives. I recently heard a, a preacher say, you know, it's no it's, we shouldn't be asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because we are all sinful in our nature. The question that we need to be asking is, why do good things happen to us bad people? 
because our hearts are evil and wicked. God in his grace, he gives us good gifts, does he not? In fact, perfect gifts. They come down, he's described as, he's described as the father of lights. I was thinking about this. You know, uh, we can first, you know, you can talk about God who's the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth. He set the lights in the heavens before us, did he not? He created physical light. Could you imagine if God had not created physical light, if we did not have the sun and the moon and the stars? This planet would be inhabitable. It would not be warm enough to sustain mankind. We would not be able to grow food. We would not have any light. God created the physical light. God, God shines his light into our hearts, does he not? In 1 John chapter 1, we, we talked about how in God is, is light, and in him there's no darkness. Evil is described as darkness, and good is described as light. There's no evil in God, only light. And his perfect light casts out all shadows. It's, it's like in our hearts when, when, I was thinking of a sundial, you know? It says that, that God's the, the, the father of lights, there's no variation, no shadow of change. It's like when God shines his light into a situation, the light doesn't move around and move a shadow. The light fully engulfs. There's no changing in his light. It reveals everything. You can't hide in the shadows anymore. You know, Jesus will ultimately be the perfect light. In heaven, it describes it from the throne of God, that there will be no more sun, there'll be no more light in the sky, but that the light will come from the throne of God. There's no shadow of change in our God. He's the beginning, the end, the alpha, and the omega. He gives us gifts of salvation, the ability to be heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He gives us, gives us that crown of life. And he says that we are, that <clears throat> of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. I think it's an amazing thing that by God's will, he drew us. By God's will, he brought us forth. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be a firstborn among many brothers. I think God foreknew my good, my bad, my ugly. God foreknew, and yet he did a work in my heart. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows that as I, as I stumble towards the goals, I stumble towards the prize, that I'm still heading towards the prize. He didn't choose losers. He choose, chose those who would conquer, who would be faithful and steadfast. And the reality is because of that, I am highly prized. You are highly prized if you are in Christ Jesus says here that we should be a kind of first fruits. First fruits are the best. They're the first. They're the first of your crop. They're the best of your crop. They're the first of your cattle, the first of your womb. It was, a, it was no small thing to bring, you know, if, if, you, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, if you brought a sacrifice and you're a small family, let's say, and to bring the first fruit of your cattle, to bring the first bit before the Lord, it was a sacrifice. It was highly valued. God highly values his prized possessions. 
So much so that he says we are bought with a price in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's transformed us. He's brought us from darkness into light. First fruits of his creation. Then he moves into the put on and put off. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, re- and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I tend to be slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger, and I cause a whole lot of carnage because of that. You know, people say it all the time, and we don't necessarily like to hear it, but it is true. God created proportions, right? Two ears, one mouth. (laughs) Um, God, God knew. God knows what's best for us. When I... I'm quick to anger. It says here that the, that the righteousness of God, the anger of man does not provide the righteousness of God. You know, I want to be righteous in God's sight, but my anger doesn't bring righteousness. All too often, my anger is birthed in my pride. All too often, my anger is birthed in my lack of listening, my lack of following God's direction. It's very rarely is it rooted in a holy anger. Very rarely do I have justified anger like when Jesus came into the temple and said, you have turned a place of prayer into a house of thieves and he overturned the tables. Most of the time, my anger is all about me, all about myself rather than the reality of is God and his son Jesus Christ being defamed. And when I have anger like that, I am therefore being a bad ambassador of my Lord and God, Jesus Christ. I don't want to misrepresent Jesus. We know the the account well when Moses struck the rock as they were in the desert. He was first instructed to struck the rock, a typology of Jesus, and water came forth. A symbol of Jesus being struck on the cross, his blood and his body broken and spilled for us like we celebrated last week. The second time, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but you know what? He got angry at God's people because they were a bunch of whining snivelers. Just go in Exodus and read it. They were whiny and they were grumbling at him and they were blaming Moses. And Moses got mad and he knew he was to speak to the rock and it was to give forth water. But he struck the rock out of anger. Moses misrepresented God. All too often, I misrepresent God as I attempt to be righteous in my flesh. I can't be righteous. Paul talked about it in Philippians chapter 3. He said how he had tried. As he was a Pharisee, he said, as to zeal... 
a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. My righteousness before God has nothing to do with my attempts to be righteous. It has everything to do with his work on the cross and my faith in Jesus Christ. It's imputed. It's a free gift that salvation. The law can't do. My anger can't do. I love how it says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We have become his righteousness, not in ourselves. Verse 21, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I've got to read you that verse of the King's James because it just, it's, it's, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. Superfluity of naughtiness. But he says, put off our natural inclinations towards sin. We're to put away the filthiness. It's the idea of being defiled or unclean. In the Old Testament, it would have been, it would have been like you couldn't go into the, the, the temple. You, uh, a priest couldn't do service because he was unclean, because maybe he had uh, handled a, a body or whatever it was, a whole long list of things. It's the idea that we are to put away the filthiness, our moral uncleanliness, our, our sin issues. We know that as we cruise through the scriptures, we're in the New Testament, we're not under heavy law, but we're under a law of love. And only a few things are mentioned that we ab- abstain from sexual immorality, eating food that's been offered up to idols, and that we have no other gods before him, I think. I'm getting them blanking out. I didn't have it in my notes. I just, but it's very simple. But we so often mess it all up, don't we? I sure do. And it talks about wickedness, this idea of, of evil and maliciousness. The reality is that when, I, I, when I'm filthy and wicked, when I, I let these things build up in my life, it's like I've let a level of arrogance come in. I get this idea, I've, maybe I've got away with it for a short while. I've hidden things but it doesn't work because we're to put away that. We're to, we're to get rid of my, the arrogant thought of my head and we're to put on in humble meekness. It says in, in meekness, we're to receive the implanted word of God. We're to put it on. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. But this, and in Isaiah 66, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He says we're to receive that implanted word. I I wonder how often do I tremble before God's word in reverence and awe? How often do I not do that? It says that it's a word that we receive. 
There's a responsibility when we receive something. If any of you are shippers or receivers, when you receive a package, you have a responsibility to bring it to the next the end user. If I'm the end user and I receive a package, it's of no use unless I open it up, look at the contents, work with the contents. I'm a mechanic most of my time. And if I get a set of brake pads or whatever, and I bring them to the vehicle and I put them in front of the vehicle, I never open the package and I never install them, they're of no use. The psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I love it. It says, with my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Challenge, have I stored up the word of God in my heart and applied it? Do I actually seek to not wander from it? Because we know that the written word points to the living word, does it not? To Jesus Christ, the source of my righteousness, where it's been imputed. I don't know who wrote it or who said it, but they said, to the degree that I endeavor to master the book, to the degree that the Lord Jesus will master me. I thought it was kind of sobering for myself sometimes. Put away wickedness and put away filthiness and receive the word of God, which is able to save our souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer her acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we're not to just hear, we're to do. Jesus talked about this in, in Matthew chapter 7. You know, we, we know the account, the, the account and the, the story that Jesus used well because we used to sing it in Sunday school, right? Wise man built his house upon a rock, right? And, but this is what Jesus was talking about. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words and does not do them, lack of application will become like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. We need to not only hear, not only see, but hear and do. It's interesting that James used the analogy of a mirror. You may remember a few weeks ago as Matt was teaching through the Ten Commandments, he used the analogy of the law as a mirror and the altar being the sink. And I was just thinking about this. He says that the idea here is that if we look intently into the mirror and study it and turn away and forget the face, forget even inability to recognize ourselves when we look back in the mirror, I need to intently study the Word of God 
and its law as it reflects the truths about my heart. But I need to go to that altar. I need to bring my sins before the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to cleanse me like Matt was talking about, the altar being the sink. And I need to look back up at the law, the perfect word of God, to be reminded of who I am and go back to the altar every day. I'm to be remember, remember the word of God when I look into that mirror. Not forget it. Apply it through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, sometimes we go through life and we say, I can't hear God's word to me in this situation or in that situation. So I was reading this week, one commentator laid it out like this, John Corson said, when I can't hear God's word to me, one, maybe my ears are clogged up with sin, as talked about in verse 21, still hanging on to my filthiness, still hanging on to my wickedness. He said, when I can't hear God's word to me, maybe my mind's already made up. And I'm not coming before him with humility and meekness, but I'm coming with him in my pride. It's in verse 22. And then he said, maybe I'm all mixed up. He said, maybe I, one of the problems is, is that I assume that reading means that I'm doing. And I'm assuming that agreeing means that I'm doing. And I'm assuming that agreeing that prayer is important means that I'm doing the work of prayer. How often is it easy to grab my Bible and read it for five minutes or ten minutes or half an hour or however long I'm reading it, close it and not remember a word that I read and not apply it for sure? Or if I do remember it, to not apply it. You know, it's easy for me to, to sit here or in a different place or wherever or listen to a message or whatever and say, man, that was a great word, great word, great word, great word. But not let the word of God do a change in my life. Harden my heart to it. Just agree with it. Sounds great. How many of us have said, I'll, I'll pray for you, brother? and haven't followed through. I know I have. With the Lord's grace, I, I, I hope that I'm applying the word better than I used to, and I hope that when I agree that with what's being taught that I'm learning to apply it more. With God's grace, I hope that when I come to the place of prayer that I remember those that I say I'm going to pray for, that I actually get on my knees and do the work of prayer. I'm thankful I'm not what I once was, but I'm not yet who God's making me into be. Can't hear God's word to me. I think those are three huge things, eh? Am I, am I in sin? Is my mind made up? Or am I all mixed up? And what are we to do? 
We're to act, we're to put to action. Verse 26 through 27, he says, if any one of you is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, when I was thinking about the application and I thought, you know, I actually don't like the way verse 26 and 27 is worded. I know that's bad of me. I don't like it. I don't like hearing the word religion. When I think of religion, I think of rules, regulations, ticky boxes, and I think of all kinds of bad connotations. You know, the word here, I think it's threshold. So I don't know, I can't pronounce it. But it means fearing or worshiping God. That's what's been translated to religious here. For me, it took on a whole different nature when I read the verse this way. If anyone thinks that he is a worshiper of God and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's worship of God is worthless. Worship of God that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained from the word. Man, when I read it like that, with one of the, after reading the, the meaning of that Greek word, it struck me very differently. When it talks about bridling my tongue, I am tend to be slow to hear, ears plugged, and quick to spew. And it says here to bridle your tongue. It's the opposite wording compared to what James used about how God gives us wisdom. James said that God gives us wisdom unbridled without holding back. And here he says that we're to bridle our tongue. I'm reminded that Jesus said that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. I don't know about you, but sometimes if I hear what's coming out of my mouth, sometimes I catch it before it's out, but all too often I catch it after it's out and I can't take it back in. But it says something about what's going on in my heart. You know, later on in James, I think it's chapter 3, it talks about um, that mankind has tamed every animal and creature on the earth and we've tamed the land and we've done this and we've done that, but we cannot control our tongues. Says with the same tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and in the same tongue we curse and tear down. It describes a tongue as the rudder on a large ship that sets the course. My tongue can be a vile thing. My tongue can get in the way of my worship of my God. My prayer for me is that I would learn through God's grace to bridle my tongue, that I would learn to listen to his word. And when stuff and circumstances happens, that I filter my stuff and circumstances through hearing of God's word before I open my mouth. Proverbs says even a fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. I want my worship before God to be worthy. I want God to look at my worship and say, well done, good and faithful son. He goes on and talks about some more practical things about what gets in the way of our worship or how to worship. 
said, worship that is pure, or religion that is pure, and undefiled before God, not made a mess of. It's this, to visit the orphans and the widow in their affliction. That got me too. He wants my time, he wants my finances, he wants my attitude, and he wants me to go and actually visit people. That's really what he's saying. It's pretty simple and clear. I don't even visit my family, to be honest with you, except this afternoon. I talk to my brothers when their car is broken or if I want to build something. Like, honestly. What do I do for the widows and the orphans, I ask myself. We're called to remember the widows and the orphans. As I was reflecting on this, I don't think my one, you know, world vision child, maybe that's a drop in the bucket, but that's not exactly what God's getting at. It's a lot bigger than that. And maybe the widows and orphans is, is, is the start of the outcasts of our world who are to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in our town, in our community, in our world. Sharing the gospel as we go. And he also says to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, we're to be pleasure of the wary of the we're to be wary rather of the pleasures of the world. I was thinking of this idea of being stained. And uh, as a mechanic, um, I can get dirty, and uh, sometimes dirtier than others. Now, I used to work at a, at a uh, heavy truck shop uh, in an engine repair shop, actually. So we would do what's called an in-frame overhaul quite regularly. In an in-frame overhaul, you roll underneath the truck and you put new bearings and all new parts in it. Now, the nastiest, dirtiest, gooeyest, nastiest, dirty stuff you'll ever get on you in your life is, I call it, main bearing goo. So you get this big block and this cap and this big one-inch bolt through it, it's super tight, and somehow over time and heat cycles and vibration, it gets some oil and carbon and nastiness in there. When you take main bearing bolts out, it drips tar. Absolute nasty tar. When I get an absolute nasty tar on my white t-shirt, that shirt will never be unstained. I can never sneak that under a dress shirt even though it came out of the work shirt drawer. Never, ever, ever. You know, I recognize that as I walk through this world, I get dirty in the things of this world. I recognize that as I walk through the world, I get dust on my shoes and I need to have my feet washed from time to time. Every day, actually. Remember what happened to Lot? He got carried away by the world, did he not? He went and settled in that valley that looked really nice, and he lived in Sodom. And he got caught up in Sodom and, and, and the things of the world. It cost him his physical wealth that he had before he went. It cost him any wealth that he may have gained there. 
It cost him his position in the society that was really a bit of a farce because he was a position of a very ungodly town. It cost him his wife. It cost him pure relationships with his children. And remember what happened. I mentioned last night the Moabites. They're from Lot, the offspring of Lot and his daughters. You know, there are some things in this world that will put a, a main-bearing goo stain on your white T-shirt. You know, Lot still had his life. And, you know, I can go through different sin issues in my life, and I know that God has forgiven them because he's made me righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's washed away my sins, and he promises he purifies me from all unrighteousness. But there's still some remnants of my actions. I don't want any main-bearing goo remnants. I, I recognize that as I struggle in this flesh, I'm going to get some dirt and I'm going to get some dust on my shirt, but I, I, I want to live a life that that white T-shirt can go in the wash machine, the altar, the sink, and be washed and come out with very, very little remnants on it. I want to be able to go to God with a clean slate. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to, I don't know about you guys, I don't want to go into heaven with the fires of hell nipping at my heels. I want to do well. I want to go before Jesus and return a crown, a good crown to give back to my Lord. I don't want a Burger King crown. I want to be unstained from the world. I think the practical stuff, some of the practical stuff here is my tongue, my thoughts. Am I applying what I'm hearing? Am I applying God's word in my life? Am I diligent and faithful? In verse 12, last time it said that he who is steadfast will, get a, will receive a crown of life. I want to be steadfast. Amen. Amen.